Good morning. We're glad you're here to worship with us at Rivermont, and I invite you to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 22. We're going to be looking at verses 39 to 53 today as we continue to study Luke's account of the last week of Jesus' earthly life. He had celebrated communion with his disciples as the Passover lamb to take away our sin. And he taught them about the upside-down nature of his kingdom, the kingdom of self-sacrifice and greatness in his strength rather than our accomplishment. And after the meal, they went to one of the usual places where they met for quiet fellowship and solitude that was to the Garden of Gethsemane. And that night they went to pray. It was a dark night. It was a dark night of the soul for Jesus and for the disciples as darkness swept over the entire earth. What did it sound like? For Jesus to pray on that night when he was betrayed. Luke 22, beginning in verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike them with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, If you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that by your Spirit you would open our eyes and open our ears to the wonderful things you have for us today. Help us to behold the the amazing depth of love that you have for us. In Christ's name we pray it. Amen. The more I read the Bible, it seems like the smarter the older people in my family seem. I can't tell you how many times my grandfather and my father and my mother have all said to me, nothing good happens after midnight. Anybody's family ever say that to them? Who knew that that was biblical, right? Here we are in the middle of the night under the cover of darkness and there was a deep mischief underway. The theme throughout this text is darkness. It's running all through it. There was betrayal under the cover of darkness. There was spiritual darkness that blinded Judas's eyes to see what he was truly doing. There was darkness over the religious authorities as they came to arrest Jesus. And there was even a darkness that came upon Jesus as he prayed. As he agonized, Luke tells us in verse 44, that word agonized is used for an intense battle. Jesus was struggling. He was 
filled with fear and terror, so intense that his blood was mixed in with his sweat as he prayed. You and I might wonder whether that can happen, but doctors tell us even today that under times of intense shock and stress, it can occur. That blood vessels called capillaries can break under stress in our lives and blood can be mixed in with our sweat. Jesus struggled and he fought and he was filled with terror in this darkness of that night. He even said in verse 53, speaking to the religious authorities, but this is your hour and the power, or we could translate it authority or reign or dominion of darkness. Darkness had descended upon them all. How would they make it through it? Maybe you've been in a place in your own life that felt like a deep darkness. Perhaps it closed over you and you felt like all the hope in your life was squeezed out. And at those times we're tempted to believe that nobody can understand how we feel. Least of all, God understand how desperate we may be. Well, here we find a Jesus in whose depth of fear and terror and awful pain just about undid him. It was so bad that he sweat blood thinking, I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to make it through this. Friends, if you know the fellowship of darkness, know that your Savior knows it too. And a Jesus who triumphs over his own hour of darkness can walk us through our hours of darkness as well. What was it that brought on the darkness in Jesus' life? Well, we turn to the story in verse 40 where they come to the place, the Mount of Olives. It was a familiar spot where they often went for fellowship and prayer and Jesus told them to pray that they not enter into temptation or trial and Jesus went over by himself verse 41 about a stone's throw away and that's a Galilean way of saying over yonder so Jesus went over yonder to pray and he knelt down in verse 41 now that may sound strange to us it may it may not sound strange to us but it was different for them because the ancients usually stood to pray They came into God's presence and when they were going to speak to God, they stood out of reverence and they also prayed aloud in the ancient world. Here these guys were standing to pray, but Jesus knelt. Why? Out of a deep heaviness and a sense of submission before His Father. He was on His knees and He poured out His heart before His heavenly Father. He knelt so that His body matched His spiritual condition. Now, as an aside, for lots of new folks here at Rivermont these days, and you may find at the end of the service, it's strange that we stretch out our hands to receive a benediction. It's exactly why we do it. Our body matches our spiritual posture. We come to the Lord receiving His blessing, palms up, arms open, not bringing anything to Him, but the posture of receiving from His goodness and His blessing and His gift of life. Our bodies are bent to match our spiritual posture. And that's what Jesus did here. He knelt to match a condition of His soul. Listen to the prayer in verse 42. Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Yours be done. He knelt in submission to His Father's will, but also because of the burden of that cup that He mentioned. It wasn't simply the fear of death that caused Jesus to be so shocked and so fearful that blood mingled with His sweat. Neither was it the bloody pain that was coming to Him in the crucifixion. If you've seen Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, 
you saw a fairly accurate historical portrayal of the brutality and the gore of flogging and crucifixion. It was awful, and that picture was pretty accurate, but that's not what weighed Jesus heavily down. It was that cup. It was that cup that weighed Jesus down. The cup is an image from the Old Testament, and Jesus used it just a few minutes before in the Lord's Supper. It was the cup of God's justice and His judgment against the guilt of sin. And that cup of justice and judgment over sin didn't rightfully belong to Jesus, but it was our justice and judgment that Jesus was going to take. It was the cup of condemnation. It was the cup of the full-throated wrath of a holy God upon sin. And it didn't rightfully belong to Jesus, but it belongs to us. It wasn't death that scared Jesus but rather it was the unbridled wrath and anger of His Father poured out on account of sin, being given to Him on the cross to drink it all the way down to its dregs. He shook at the weight of the wrath that was to fall upon Him so that wrath could be propitiated. It's that Bible word that means turned aside. Jesus took that cup of wrath and turned aside God's anger so that there would be none left for us who believe. Sometimes we think about the cross as the place where judgment was poured out upon Jesus and our guilt is removed. But we feel sometimes we've been forgiven, but God still peeved at us. We're forgiven, but He's still angry. He's still still just furious with us. Friends, on the cross, Jesus not only removed our guilt, but He propitiated. He turned aside the wrath and anger of God. Jesus took the wrath and anger of God so that you and I don't have to. And further, that cup of judgment was the cup of alienation. It was the cup of separation. It was a cup of being cast away from God's presence as a punishment for sin. Now think about that for a moment. From eternity past, the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit had a perfect and full and intimate fellowship and nothing had ever introduced a breach into that relationship. And now that was about to change. Jesus would be forsaken in our place on the cross. Jesus would be alienated. He would be separated from His heavenly Father. The Father would turn His back upon the Lord Jesus Christ to separate Himself from Jesus so that you and I don't have to remain separated from our Heavenly Father. Jesus was forsaken so that we don't have to be. We know just a little. We see in mere shadows what that feels like to have a father turn his back upon a son. A few nights ago, my eight-year-old boy Isaiah did something just before bedtime that made me angry. And what he did doesn't really matter, but what does matter is my reaction. I got angry and I raised my voice way out of proportion to what I should have done, and then I turned away from him. I turned my back on him and I turned the light out and I left my son in the dark sobbing. Here I offer my Father of the Year award to you to take away from me. Now, in spite of that, We have a really good relationship. He is the best son that anyone could ever imagine having. But we're both sinners. And even in an imperfect relationship, my turning away from my son, my turning my back on him, left him sobbing because he felt the horror of the breach in our relationship. 
He, we know what it feels like when a father turns his back on his son. Now, I've since repented to Isaiah and he graciously has forgiven me. But we know what it feels like to have a father turn away from us, to forsake us, to be alienated from us. And we can only imagine what it was like for the father and the son of God who have a perfect relationship where there was never any sin in it. And yet here they experienced a breach that has never been experienced in eternity past and will never again, not because of what Jesus did, but because of what I did and because of what you have done. Jesus was forsaken so that we may never be. Jesus took upon Himself our guilt. Our guilt, our sin, our shame was imputed. It was credited to Jesus so that He would be treated like a rebel and a sinner that we are. He stood in our place and the Father turned His back so that sin could be punished. That cup... That cup of guilt and shame and alienation was on Jesus' mind in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Being broken in body and alienated in spirit, weighed down by my sin, it brought darkness into the Lord's countenance that night. The darkness that left Him completely alone for the first time in eternity. And it was upon Him and it scared Him said in verse 42, If there's any other way, Father, please do it. If there's any other way to save them without killing me, if there's any other way to love them and forgive them and receive them into relationship without alienating me, if there's any other way, please do it. There wasn't another way. Is there any doubt left how serious our sin is before our Father? That He would turn His back on His own Son out of love for us. Let's not overlook how incredible that moment was in the garden. Sometimes when we pray, we feel better. Especially if we're praying for the strength to obey. You know, we sing that song, trust and obey, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than trust and obey, Right? But Jesus prayed in the garden for strength to trust and obey and do what His Father called Him to do. And the obedience of Jesus made things worse for Him. His obedience to the will of His Father crushed Him. It didn't make Him happy. He went to a place of horror for you and for me. Jesus fought and battled in the garden in prayer. And He was strengthened to take those steps to the cross so that you and I would be reconciled to a Holy Father forever. Jesus was forsaken. The Father's back was turned against Him so that all the wrath and the anger of the Holy God against sin, our sin, was poured out upon Jesus. So that we can be reconciled in a relationship of love. Do you believe that? It was that cup that brought Jesus to this dark night of his soul. And if Jesus can walk through that dark night, then he can help us walk through our own dark nights too. We see the incredible love of God for us in Christ's work. So what's the so what for you and for me? We believe, but also we're told to pray. 
This whole episode began in verse 40 with Jesus telling them to pray so that they can withstand temptation or trial. And then He told them again at the end tenderly in verse 46 to pray. He could have castigated them for falling asleep and and in the middle He prayed. I told you earlier that in the ancient world they stood to pray. They also prayed aloud. And so Jesus sent these these brothers over on the side to pray, to stand together, pray aloud together, to encourage each other, to stay awake as they hear one another praying, but they still fell asleep. They failed together in an hour of darkness and sorrow in their souls. Maybe that's where you are today. Feeling trapped in the darkness and you're wondering, how do I get out? Jesus tells us to pray. How? Well, first... We pray relationally to a caring Father. Look again at verse 42. Jesus poured out His heart to His Father. If there's any other way, please let it pass, Father. We don't find in Jesus' prayer a stoicism, a I've just got to keep going attitude. But instead, in prayer, Jesus was relating to His Heavenly Father and telling Him exactly what was on His mind. Because prayer is relational. Prayer is, is a real person, you... Relating to another real person, God. Prayer is about pouring out our hearts, telling Him what's truly on our minds. It's not about presenting what we think He wants to hear. But instead, pouring out our hopes and our dreams and our fears and our loves and our sorrows to a Father who loves us. Prayer is relational. And prayer is given to a Father because He cares and He's tender toward us and He wants to know what's on our hearts. In a particularly dark time in my life that I've shared with you before, after my first wife left and divorced me, I struggled to know how to pray. If you've ever been in a place of betrayal and pain, you may be able to identify with that too. I remember thinking, what does God want me to say to Him right now? What am my my prayers supposed to sound like? Because I'm really at a loss. I don't know what I'm supposed to pray. And it brought me a lot of anguish because I didn't know how to talk to my father anymore. And then I turned to and I meditated on this prayer of Jesus in the garden. You realize, of course, that Jesus knows that the father won't do what he asks him to do. It's not like Jesus has forgotten the plan of salvation. He knows that he must be betrayed. He knows that he has to suffer humiliation. He knows the terror that is awaiting him. He knows the plan of salvation put into place from the foundation of the world that will send him through the cross. Jesus hadn't forgotten it. But he poured out his heart before his Father because he knows his Father cares about him and he loves him. And Jesus felt the freedom to pray something he knows his Father wouldn't do. He knows his Father couldn't do it. And yet Jesus, sinless Jesus, poured out His heart, telling His Father exactly what was on His mind. And I remember thinking, if Jesus can pray like that, then maybe my Father wants me to do the same. Praying in the darkness of life is laying hold of that relationship with your Heavenly Father, laying bare your soul before Him who cares for you. It's the easiest thing in the world to perceive a powerful, sovereign God who rules the world without any accidents. But it is a short step to imagine this God is indifferent. 
He's so busy doing his God stuff out there that he doesn't care about little old me. Friends, don't worry so much about getting your prayers right. Don't worry so much about how you sound, but instead relate to your Heavenly Father. Pour out your heart for Him. Tell Him what's genuinely on your mind because He does love for you. He does care for you. You're His child. Praying through the darkness is laying hold of a Father who loves us. But it also includes submission to His fatherly care. Jesus knelt in submission and in trust to know whatever the Father did was best. Not my will, but yours be done, he prayed. That's a hard prayer to pray. It's a hard prayer when you're in a desperate position and pray, not my will, but yours be done. And it really only comes from a heart that knows that it's loved. And because you are loved, you can trust your Father. We learn to pray that way when we remember what we talked about first, that Jesus took upon Himself all of our guilt, that Jesus was alienated in our place so that our Father loves to hear what's on our hearts. It's only when we remember those things that when we're in the dark places of our lives, we can pray, not my will, but yours be done. It's only when we remember that our Father sees the end from the beginning He sees and He knows what's best for us and He's committed to what's best for us so much so that He sent His Son to the cross for us. We can pray, not my will but Yours be done when we have that truth that we shall never be forsaken. When we know that and it grips our soul, we can pray that way. He's a Father to be trusted. But how do we handle it when we don't get what we ask for? What does submission look like in those cases? Can we persist in prayer even when it seems like our prayers aren't being answered? What does submission look like there? Well, we can persist, but with a caveat. We do continue to pour out our hearts before our Father, but by remembering two things in mind that a friend once reminded me. It may be that God's going to give you what you ask, but you're not ready to receive it yet. It may be that He has to do some work in your life, some work in your soul, before He can grant you what you ask from Him. So when He doesn't give us what we ask for and we're in a dark place, absolutely keep pouring out your heart before the Lord. Ask Him what you think you need in this life, but follow it up by saying, Lord, what's necessary to change before You can give me what I'm asking You for? What are the places where I need to grow in my life so that I can be ready? Second, my friend told me that it's perhaps that God wants to grow you without this thing that you ask for. It might be inconceivable to us, but it just may be that the Lord knows that you are going to grow into Christ-likeness most without having the thing you're asking for. And we pour out our hearts and we ask the Lord for what we know and what we think is right. And yet we also say, Lord, how can I grow without having this thing that I'm asking you for? Not my will, but yours be done. We pour out our hearts to our Father who loves us and cares for us. And we still bow the knee, submitting to His fatherly care. Ask 
whatever is on your mind, whatever is on your heart, and yet also ask that He produce His fruit in your life, even if the darkness remains. Because His promise is true that the light will come in the morning. There will be an end to our darkness. There will be an end to our pain. The light will come in the morning. Finally, how do we fight in the darkness of our lives? Well, verses 47 to 53, we see that at work. From verse 38 above, what we looked at last week, we know the disciples had two swords with them. And from Jesus' response there, we know they didn't get what their purpose was. Jesus told them, you can't fight spiritual battles with swords. Enough of that, He said. And when the group came to arrest Jesus, Peter pulled out one of those two swords in verse 50 and lopped off the ear of the servant of the high priest. The Gospel of John tells us his name was Malchus. No more of this, Jesus said in verse 51. And he compassionately healed the ear of his enemy. Think about that. He put the ear back upon the man who was arresting him to take him to the cross. He was compassionate and gracious toward his enemy. Friends, you can't fight God's conflict with sin by using man's weapons. It just won't work. Peter reacted out of the flesh in his attack on Malchus. And even in that moment, the nature of Jesus' kingdom was shining forth. His kingdom is one of compassion and healing and forgiveness and grace. It's not one of strife and the sword. For the weapons of the kingdom of God are prayer and trust in the gospel that renews and redeems and restores. It's not the, the weapons of the flesh that we use to fight against the darkness in our lives. How do you fight it? Well, I hope you don't do it by swinging a sword. But yet in our flesh, we often swing tools of destruction, don't we? We think, perhaps I'm going to attack you back. You attack me. You hurt me by saying something harmful, saying some untrue things, then I'm going to hurt you back by doing the same thing. I'm going to use the same tactics against you. And yet Jesus responded to attacks with compassion and healing. You can't fight spiritual conflicts by attacking other people. It doesn't work. You might say, you're going to tear me down through gossip and insinuation and slander? I'll show you. I'm going to do some of the same. You put me down, I'm going to put you down too. But how about this for gospel power? Let's not put anyone down except on our prayer list. That's fighting in the power of the compassionate and healing God. We don't have to return attack with attack. Let's not put anyone down except on our prayer list so the Lord will do His work in them and in us. When we battle the darkness of our own hearts, we fight in His strength, not ours. And we do it by remembering The gospel love that took for us our judgment and our shame and our alienation as Jesus went to the cross so that you and I might live. And no matter how dark your life is, know that your Father loves you and He loves to hear the cries of your voice. And lay hold of those weapons. The gospel and prayer to fight back the terror of the night. When I was a kid, I was afraid of the dark. Maybe you were too. I was afraid of 
what might lurk under my bed or what might be in my closet, what might be down the hall. Most of us at one point in life have been afraid of the dark. But Jesus shows us here that he's been to the dark and there's nothing to fear. He's been to the dark place and he has shown within it his light of love, his light of forgiveness, his light of cleansing. And he promises to walk with you and me in our darkness today. Would you trust Him? Let's pray. Father, we ask that in the darkness of our lives, You would shine forth the light of Your love and Your compassion. There are some here, Father, who are battling illness. Some who are battling despair. Some who are battling against a sin that has a grip on their life that won't let go. There are some that are battling a deep, feeling of shame and they want to go hide from anyone who wants to know them we face dark places and we ask holy spirit that in the dark places of our lives you will help us to remember that you love us that you know the depth of the truth of our hearts you know what we fear will make you turn your back on us and yet help us to know that the Father's back was turned already so that His face of compassion and healing is turned toward us. Help us to pour out our hearts before You, knowing that You love us. Whatever the circumstances, would You hear and give us what You know is best, all for Your glory's sake and for our good. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.